A song, a song for the Sabbath day. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, Most High, to declare your goodness in the morning and your faithfulness by night, with a ten stringed lute and with the harp, with resounding music on the lyre. For you, Lord, have made me joyful by what you have done. I will sing for joy over the works of your hands. How great are your works, Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Praise team. I've got a couple of announcements that I need to call to your attention before we uh, dig into our time in the Word this morning. Uh, first of all, there is a, a party that's happening here uh, next Saturday, okay? So next Saturday, there's going to be kind of a harvest uh, party, and there's a sign up, there are sign-up sheets on the table in the entryway as you come in for help. So we need some help, people to step up to the plate and come alongside and um, uh, be there to supervise some activities, but also to provide food and all sorts of stuff. So there's an announcement in the bulletin, I think, and there are a table, there's a table out there, or the table in the entryway. So please sign up and come and join us. Uh, it's from uh, 10 to 2, is that right? 11 to 2? 11 to 2? Help me here. 11 to 2? I don't know. Okay, 11 to 2. Okay. And there's a chili cook-off and uh, all kinds of good stuff. Ladies have been signed up to bring baked goods. And so there's going to be a lot of good food and, and hopefully a lot of fun, particularly geared towards, uh, you know, if you have uh, younger kids, younger children, uh, that's kind of the idea. So there's some games and stuff planned for that. Also tonight, actually late this afternoon, this evening, 5 to 7, we're having a, we're, we're looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to this. I shouldn't say we are. I think the elders in the, in the ministry team, we're looking forward to a, a service of unity. So we're going to be hosting uh, predominantly uh, the librarian, the Christian librarian community from the greater Des Moines area. So they're bringing in, we should, we're planning for about 200, 225, 30 people here tonight. And we're going to have a service of unity to show our support for the, the victims of the, the recent tragedy that, that took place in Liberia uh, regarding uh, one of the missionaries that we, we support. And so we're coming together. There will be an offering that's taken to, to support the victims. We're going to be supporting the cause of missions. So the Christian community in Liberia is concerned that, uh, you know, that the cause of missions is not diminished and that the, the work of the Lord that goes on in that is not 
put back, especially the work that we do in, in Liberia. And so we're excited about that. It's going to be an event-filled time. Uh, the, the music's going to be loud. Uh, there is going to be an offering, and the offering will be, uh, there'll be two bins up here, and the offering will be the, in those bins, and you'll be asked to come forward to put your money in the offering bins, okay? We're doing it tra- traditional Liberian style. And so uh, I'm challenging us as a church to come and to step out of our comfort zones, okay? Because this will be different than anything you've ever seen, and yet we're trusting that the Spirit of God is going to be at work, and there's going to be a lot of food and fellowship afterwards, so there's going to be traditional librarian food, and then uh, if you can help out and bring some finger food, please talk to Mary in the, in the kitchen afterwards, uh, because we're going to have a mix, and it's going to be a grand and glorious time we trust, so I'm excited about that and looking forward to it tonight, so I uh, appreciate your, your joining with us. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, gather on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning, we give you praise for who you are and for the opportunity to worship you through the study of your word. And it is my prayer that your spirit would speak to our hearts, uh, that you would take the truths that uh, for some are, are familiar and maybe too familiar for us. And I pray that you would refresh our minds and our hearts with what these truths mean. And for some, completely new and I pray that you would work in, in, in their hearts uh, to draw them to yourself, to realize the joy of what it means to be in a relationship with God through his son, faith in his son, Jesus. And I ask now that your word would accomplish its purpose, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I once was... Uh, able to give a speech, a stump speech, at a caucus for a particular political candidate. And I spoke passionately and I spoke directly because I really believed in the guy. I believed who he was. I believed in his uh, stance on the issues. And so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm down with this. I'll, I'll speak for him. And so I spoke, and I spoke passionately and, 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 and firmly. And if any of us, some of you are a little bit more timid, you don't really speak boldly about anything, but if you do speak boldly about something, it's probably, you know, your convictions about politics, maybe it's your convictions about religious issues, perhaps it's about finances, maybe it's the economy, you know, there are some things that, that, that get most people animated to, to speak boldly and to speak up for what's gone. Unfortunately... For those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ, speaking about Jesus is often not one of those things that we are passionate about and bold about and unapologetic about and forceful about. We see, we're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of being reprimanded. We're afraid of being ridiculed. Somebody's going to think I'm a Jesus freak. And I, I, heard, I heard somebody say, you know, a Jesus freak is just somebody who loves Jesus more than you do. So, uh, you know, take it for what it's worth. But that, that's kind of, that's, our timidity stands in stark contrast to Paul's tenacity. 
to proclaim the gospel, particularly to the church in Rome, to the people of Rome, the Gentiles in Rome, that we find ourselves studying in this first chapter of the book of Romans. And we see him, him preaching. So he, in verses 1 through 7, he's explained and his, his authority, okay? He's established, he is authoritative as an apostle. And in verses 8 through 15, he went on to establish, uh, express his authenticity. I'm a genuine guy. I really care about you. I'm concerned about the church in Rome. And now we see in verses 16 and 17 him going on and explaining the aggressiveness with which he approached the proclamation of the gospel in not just Rome, but everywhere, but particularly in Rome. And he did so in the face of hostility, you know, Everywhere Paul went, they were hostile to the gospel. He was unashamed. He preached because he was unashamed of the gospel. And so I hope in the next few moments as we look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, his courage that was grounded in the guts of the gospel, which is justification by faith, which I think is the guts of the gospel, is basically that which is declared in the book of Romans and then uh, declared here and then demonstrated and detailed as you go through the book of Romans. And his explanation of why he was so unashamed, I think, serves as motivation for us to join him and a challenge for us to join him in being unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, uh, Paul's defense of the gospel of gospel proclamation, provides us with a couple of incentives for unapologetically announcing justification by faith. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And so if you have your Bibles or you have your phone and you have it on your tablet or device or if you want to reach down under the seat in front of you or behind you there underneath the seats there should be a, a Bible. I'm in Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 and Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so as Paul starts out, we see the, why we should be bent on proclaiming the gospel. Verse 16, he starts out, For I am not ashamed. It introduces the impetus for his being eager to share the gospel. Now, if you remember, you look back just at verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, there are three I am statements in verses 14 through 16. In verse 14, he, he says, I am under obligation. Verse 15, I am eager. Verse 16, I am not ashamed. And what we have is in the middle is his eagerness, and then his eagerness is motivated, is animated by the other two, by his obligation and by his being unashamed. And so this I am not ashamed is the second reason why he is eager. Okay? That's why he's eager. He's eager because I'm not ashamed. He wasn't personally embarrassed by the gospel. Now, if you've been looking, looking at the news or listening to the news, you know that there are a bunch of people in the United States that are not ashamed to stand up in support of Palestine 
the Palestinian, the, 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 what happened in the, the, the Hamas, what Hamas did. They're not afraid to stand up in, in support of what many would see as, as egregious and heinous crimes against humanity. But they're standing up and they're not ashamed. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He courageously proclaimed the gospel. Now think about Paul's life. Paul had proclaimed the gospel even though he'd been run out of Antioch. And if you, you walk through the book of Acts, in, in chapter 13 of Acts, he was run out of Antioch. And he proclaimed the gospel in spite of He was stoned and left her dead in Lystra. <laughs> That's an amazing story. He was stoned and left her dead, and then he got up and he went back in and started preaching. He was unashamed of the gospel, even though he was jailed in Philippi, chased out of Thessalonica, smuggled out of Berea, mocked in Athens, and considered a heretic in Jerusalem. And he was unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's opponents never hampered it, and his critics never hindered his proclamation of the gospel. And he urged his son in the faith, Timothy, to follow his example. Okay, to exercise the same courage based upon the same convictions that God would keep him eternally secure in the face of suffering. I want you to look at first, 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 8, and then we'll look at verse 12. Therefore, do not, this is Paul to Timothy, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 12. He says this, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to protect what I have entrusted unto him against that day, until that day. I'm not ashamed, because I'm trusting that God has got me eternally secure in his palm of his hand, even though I'm suffering now, I'm secure. Paul was not ashamed. Now, see, every, every one of us uh, who, who names the name of Christ, we understand the offense of being ashamed. We know that we're not supposed to be ashamed, and that's what tells Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into the glory of his Father with his holy angels. We know that. The problem is that we're routinely tempted to be silent and too often we are. Even though we have lots of opportunities. We're, we're, we're silent. We just shrink back and we, we hold back from speaking the truth of the gospel of Christ. Now, what is it we're supposed to speak? The gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news. But what's the good news? The good news starts with Bad news. Well, the good news, I'll get to that in a minute. Okay, so what the good news is that every human being, every human being deserves God's just wrath, His just punishment because of our rebellion, because of our stubbornness, because of our pride, because of our jealousy, because of our bitterness, because of our, you name the name, it's attitudes and actions that are contrary to God. But we can be granted, wonderfully, we can be forgiven and given new life through faith in Christ. That's the good news. So, first of all, we've got to admit that we're messed up. 
That's part of the problem. We have to admit that we're messed up, that we're sinners. And the gospel begins with an assault on and a condemnation of our pride, of our selfishness, of our self-indulgence, and declares that every attempt of self-righteousness on our part is worthless before God. So, our pride, our selfishness, our self-indulgence, condemned, critic God saying, no, absolutely not, I cannot stand it, and any attempt you make to get to God on your own, worthless. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags, as the prophet said. Lost people, you know, you have somebody say that, you know what, you're really not a very nice person. In fact, God condemns you because of your selfishness, your pride, your rebellion, your self-indulgence. How's that play out for you? That, 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 I mean, have that conversation with your neighbor? I mean, rebellious people are repulsed by and reject, resist that they're really that bad. I mean, Jesus said it. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. I mean, and you shine the light on their darkness, and what do they do? They're like cockroaches. They run and hide. And we're them. We are such people. You see, everyone decides, and, 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 and this is the thing, our fears of ridicule and rejection as those who share the message are magnified in this age of moral relativism and moral revolution where everyone decides what's real and everyone decides what's right in their own eyes. It's like, don't tell me I'm doing something wrong. It's my truth. And my truth trumps your truth. And I feel like I should do this. Don't tell me who I am or how I should identify because that's my identity. That's my reality. Even if their reality is insanity. We're not supposed to tell them. And the temptation is to remove the offense of the cross. To remove the offense that people are desperately wicked and need a Savior. We don't like to be shown our sin. Even if you know Christ, when you sin and you know you sin and you're caught in your sin, I'm caught in my sin, I still try to deny my sin. That's our sin nature. And it's hard in this culture because the temptation is to remove the offense of the cross from our presentation of the truth. And when we remove the offense of the cross from the, temp from the declaration of the truth, we, we gut the gospel of its true power and its truth. Take this. If, if gay people, if gluttons, and if greedy people are told that they can experience the grace, forgiveness, and salvation of God without ever repenting of and turning from their urges and their practices, that is a false gospel. Sin is sin, and sin must be repented of and turned from. Now, that doesn't mean we, we, we have to be belligerent and obnoxious. 
But we can't shrink from calling sin, sin. And that sin must be repented and turned from. We must admit our sin and admit that it deserves God's wrath. And then we must die to that sin, turn from it, and trust Christ in repentance and faith. Now you say, well, yeah, I know all that. Do you really? I mean, we just had in our first service, you know, we're singing about the blood of Christ. And what that did, how it cleanses us from our sin. If we don't see our need for sin, then we cannot need our, see our need for a Savior. So we must call it, we must admit it, then we must believe. We must believe that Christ died as the perfect sacrifice. And the substitute in our place that He rose again. He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds we are healed. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. So confronting sin and calling people to repentance and faith so they can be saved. Calling people to repentance and faith in Christ so they can be saved. Guess what? No reason for shame in that. There's no cause for shame in that. It's the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he goes on. At the end of verse 16 and all of verse 17 to explain why he's not ashamed. The first part, verse 16, is why I'm eager to proclaim the gospel because I'm not ashamed. The second part of this message and this section, verses 16b through 17, is why I'm not ashamed and why we shouldn't be ashamed. And he gives us three reasons why we shouldn't be ashamed that are centered in the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see why we should be bold in our proclamation. First of all, because of the result of the gospel. Paul says, for, this is the reason, the first of two reasons he gives for not being ashamed, and the first is, if it is the power of God for salvation. Power is the Greek word from which we get our English word, dynamite. The gospel is the dynamite for salvation. Uh, Last summer, uh, we, they did this huge project on North Walnut Creek, okay? They hauled in, I don't know how many tons of this, these huge boulders, well, I call them boulders, they're not boulders, they're riprap, these huge big rocks, and they dumped them out here in our, in our yard, and they kept bringing uh, dump truck loads, dump truck loads, dump truck loads, and they had a big, um, a big excavator out there, you know, and they had this huge claw thing I mean it was just massive and it was just taking those boulders and throwing them into this other dump truck with tracks on it hauling it down dumping it on the creek and it just threw them around like they were pebbles I was like wow that is amazing power the text Paul says I'm not ashamed because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation it's the power of God to rescue rebellious people from the penalty and the power of sin and give them eternal life. It's God's power. And so if we don't speak the gospel, we cut God off at the knees and use His power. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says this in verse 24. He says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, It is the power of God. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, that's the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. 
Human beings, what? We, we, we long for contentment. We long to master our impulses. I, I want to control my... No, uh, well, some people don't. Uh, don't seem to want to control their impulses. But deep down, I think we, we kind of want to be like, control our impulses. We want to live with purpose. I remember the first time the gospel ever made sense to me. It was that God has a purpose for your life. And the purpose transcended having a house in the suburbs with two cars and two kids. You know, it was like, wow, it was a vision that God had a, a, a future for my life that was for eternity, that would impact eternity, not just my own selfish indulgence. We, we long for, for purpose, and we want to have harmony with other people. Uh, the philosopher Seneca put it this way, that we're waiting, we, we ha- that we're looking for a hand to let down and lift us up. Augustine put it this way, you know, uh, our, our hearts, are, our, our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. And I would just say that there, there's no humanly devised program, no humanly devised belief system, no humanly oriented religious system that's adequate to lift us up, that, that really can satisfy what our heart longs for, that will remove our discontent and eliminate our deviant behavior. Nothing apart from Christ. No human effort, even the, the, keeping the religious law this is the people to whom Paul wrote, okay? The Jewish people keep the religious law. It's powerful enough to conquer our sin nature and to make us right with God and give us a meaningful life. Only the power of God through the work of Christ can lift us up from our sinful state of ignorance and bring us into a place of right relationship with God. And so I don't know how we can say it any other way, but it's the power of God that will enable us to know a right relationship with God, to be fully satisfied, and then have the power to live a life that's meaningful for eternity. The second reason is the reach of the... Well, first of all, I want to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. And then he goes, for what the law could not do and that was weak in the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. It's, it's the gospel. Second, the reach of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to salvation. If you are here this morning listening online and you've never fully turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, then you do not know what it is to be in a right relationship with God. And you need this salvation because there's nothing you're chasing after nothing that will provide you the satisfaction that can only be found through a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ and it is for all who believes everyone who believes it's uh non-discriminatory okay Uh, there's no discrimination at the foot of the cross It is for everyone who believes that Christ died for our sins and that he rose again to bring about right standing with God. Salvation is not on our own efforts. Not reliance on our own goodness. That's probably a really good thing because anybody who knows you well knows you're not that good. And we come on Sunday morning, you know, we smile and we put on a good face and like, how are you doing? Oh yeah, I'm doing fine. It's a lie. 
And we smile and laugh, but you know, some of you are really hurting. Some are really lonely, scared, afraid, empty, hollow. And Christ brings his wholeness into that. He brings his life into that and fills us when we couldn't be filled ourselves. The reach of the gospel is for everyone. It, it's, it, it, it's not because of our own wisdom. It's, not, it's only because of our belief in Christ. And nobody is a believer. Nobody's brought into right relationship with God because they professed, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. My wife spent a few uh, months in Japan during college. And the Japanese said, well, everybody in America is a Christian. Really? Those of us in America didn't know that. But they knew, they, they just, because you're not uh, Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu or Shinto or whatever, you're a Christian. So not everyone who professes that they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everybody who sits in the pews or in the chairs in church is a Christian. Not everybody who came down an aisle and, and said, I know Jesus is a Christian. Not everybody who served on the church board, who was a member of a church, who gave money in the offering or served as a missionary is a Christian. It's everyone who believes is a child of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. The Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, there's proviso there. The people in the household had to believe too. Okay. Just because he believed didn't mean everybody's saved. And you can see that if you look down at Acts 16.34. Okay. Ephesians 2.8.9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's belief that brings about salvation. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So if you're here this morning and you believe, then you're in. If you don't believe, God wants you in. But you're out. Okay? And so we want you to be in. That's where God's different. That's different from other religions. Some other religions, if you're out, they want you out. And they want to take you out. In Christianity, if you're out, no, we want you in. And God wants you in. And so that's the thing. And, and, and Paul says, you know, look, this power is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And it's not because somebody said it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is, is preaching to the, the Corinthians. And he says, my message and my preaching were not with persuasive words of man's wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but what? The power of God. So it's like, you know, he's not up there some slick preacher guy, you know, kind of talking fancy and, and, and convincing you and putting pressure on you and trying to make you feel uh, something that, that, no, it's I'm just telling you straight up what the gospel says. And so I try to do the same thing because I'm not all that, you know, I don't know how to make it all fancy and, uh, you know, sell you something. What I want to do is say, you're a sinner and you deserve God's judgment. 
But by His grace, He sent His Son, Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross in your place so that if you would put your faith, your trust in what Christ did on the cross, you will be forgiven. You'll be given new life. You'll be given power to live in this life in a way that you never knew. You'll be given a prize at the end of this life, which is glory in heaven. And that's what I want for you. You have to choose. You walk down the path of emptiness and despair and destruction that God says, or you can choose to turn and trust in Christ and know life and purpose and meaning and joy. Now, that doesn't mean everything's going to be hunky-dory. No, it's not going to be, but in the midst of it, you have Christ to cling to. Paul's boldness was born out of his confidence that God's power, not man's persuasiveness, works through the message preached to bring everyone who believes into the family of God, out of darkness, into the light. And that's regardless of your nationality or ethnic affiliation, ethnicity or nationality. Why? He says, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. So, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. doesn't matter what your nationality is. At the foot of the cross, we all are free to come and believe and know Christ. You see, he saves us. To the Jew first means that they got the first opportunity. Okay? So, came to the God. Well, Jesus came to the Jews. He said, I, I came to the Jews. He was the first to declare to them in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Who's he speaking to? The Jews. We can see in Matthew uh, chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, Jesus said, uh, told the twelves, he sent them out after instructing them, saying, do not go to the, on the road to the Gentiles. Where's Paul going? On the road to the Gentiles. <laughs> but Jesus didn't go to the Gentiles first. He went to the Jews first, okay? And you can see in, in Acts chapter six, uh, 13, verse 26, he says, Brothers, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you uh, who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. I'm coming to you. I'm giving you the first opportunity, Jewish people, because you're God's chosen people. The gospel is the power to save all who believe, starting with the Jews and also to the Greeks, the Gentiles. So, I mean, he's writing to the Romans, and he's saying, I'm coming to you, I'm coming to the Gentiles, but I don't want you to think I'm discriminating against the Jews. It's an equal opportunity thing, right? The gospel is for all. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. Now, the Jewish people, they would have been amped up about this. He comes to us first. That's great. That's terrific. But the fact that he's going to the Gentiles also, uh, no, that's terrible. That's terrible. John chapter... Uh, 7 verse 35, he says this. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will uh, not uh, find him? He does not intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? Like that would be anathema. That would be a bad thing. And Paul says, oh yeah, the, the, the gospel's for the Jews and it's also for, for the Greeks. Uh, how many of you have ever ridden on an airplane? Yeah, raise your hand. Come on. This is participation. Okay, you've ridden on an airplane. Okay, so you're sitting at the gate, and you get on the airplane, and it says, okay, all the premier uh, class people, you get aboard first. You know, like, oh, that's not me. Okay. Uh, rewards members, premier people. Okay, then if you're elderly or you need assistance, you can board on the plane. Or if you have young children, you can board on the plane. You get on first. That's fine. I'm cool with that. But guess what? I get on too. I get on too. 
Everybody who has a ticket gets on. Everyone who believes is saved. Is saved from what? Saved from our sin. Saved from condemnation. Saved from a life of emptiness and, and lack of purpose. Saved from the power of sin as well as the penalty of sin. Sin no longer has to be our master. God's power, God powerfully saves all who believe. And then finally, the, the third uh, reason why he's, he's amped up about uh, and be not ashamed is the revelation of the gospel. He says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. This he gets excited about. And so he explains how this powerful gospel comes to both Jews and Gentiles. It comes to both Jews and Gentiles because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, that's a big uh, theological um, discussion about what does that mean? The righteousness of God is revealed. Well, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, first of all, I think, in the fact that a holy God rightly punishes sin. And he punished sin in the gospel in, at the cross of Christ. And then he shows his righteousness in punishing sin, but also his righteousness in bringing lost people into the kingdom through what Christ did on the cross and justifying people who are undeserving sinners and pardoning those who believe. That's his conferring, us, uh, you know, he's, he's making us righteous. Those who don't, aren't righteous, he's make, that's his righteousness on display, okay, in the gospel. But that's not exactly, I don't think that's primarily what Paul meant here. It, it's a righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, okay, it's God's righteousness seen, displayed, but I think what Paul's talking about here, and we, we, we see this in Romans chapter 3 verse 26, you can just write, write that down, it says he's just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ, so that's his righteousness, right? But his righteousness is also, it, it could be, and I, I think the NIV actually translates it with the sense of it, it's a righteousness from God that's on display. It's the righteousness from God. So that what's on display is not primarily his righteousness practiced, like God's practice of righteousness, displaying righteousness, but righteousness possessed. What's on display is that we become righteous. That's his righteousness that's on display, is that Rescue, he, he, where it's possessed by rescued sinners who are reckoned or counted righteousness. So the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness from God is revealed in that those who are sinners now become saints. Uh, the generosity of George Soros is seen in passing his empire to his son. Okay, That's the, the generosity of George Soros. The generosity from George Soros is the wealth his son possesses. The generosity, the righteousness from God is the righteousness that we possess. We possess God's righteousness and so in our possession of God's righteousness, his righteousness is declared and seen. And that's the amazing thing God made. And then this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Okay, You can see it on the screen. He that is God made him that is Jesus who knew no sin. What does that mean? God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus didn't become a sinner, but he took upon himself and bore our sins 
in his place. So he became sin in that he was punished for our sin. And so our sin placed on him, and guess what? That we might be, and get the word, made the righteousness of God in him. Our sin placed on him so that he is punished, and his righteousness placed on us so that we are righteous. Uh, Some people call it the divine transfer, okay? We are made righteous. The righteousness of God that we would possess it. And so that's what is taking place. I think that's what he's for undeserved sinners. And this happens, this our becoming righteous happens from faith to faith, it says. Um, I would just translate that completely by or only by faith. You and I can become, we're wicked people, right? I mean, and we can become righteous in the sight of God, made right with God, and have our, our life given to us if we put our faith or our trust in what Jesus did on the cross. By faith in, alone, only by faith, completely. The, the theme of Romans is justification by faith. You're declared righteous by faith. God's righteousness becomes our possession only by faith. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, you can turn over Romans chapter 3, and you can see Romans 3, 3 verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, Woo. shown, revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ, Jesus Christ for all those who believe. We are declared righteous, and in our being declared righteous, our possession of righteousness, that's the righteousness of God declared to the world. It's seen in us. You say, well, phew, I don't know I'm very righteous. Well, you're not. Uh, in practice. But you are in position. Positionally before God, he sees us as righteous. His righteousness, his righteousness, not just any righteousness, God's righteousness rests upon us. We possess it, just like Soros' son possesses that wealth. Christ's death and resurrection made it possible for rebellious people to be righteous, to be alive, but only those who accept it possess it. I forgot to bring it with me, but I, got, I have a DQ gift card, okay? Uh, a Dairy Queen gift card. Uh, some gracious folks in the church gave us a DQ gift card. Okay, so there's a potential for me to have a blizzard, and I like blizzards. Okay, the more chocolate, the better. The blizzard. Okay, don't think anything else. No, nothing else in it. Don't need anything but chocolate. Okay, I mean the. The charcoal brownie extreme blizzard, that is the ticket right there. We're, those are going to be served right up front in heaven. Uh, okay, that was an extrapolation. But there's a potential for me to have that blizzard. It's possible for me to have that blizzard, but it only becomes personal when I take it in and use it. The potential for you and I to be righteous before God and to have eternal life is there because of what Christ did on the cross, but it only becomes personal when we personally accept what Jesus did on the cross as for us through faith 
in Christ. Right standing with God. This is what Paul, this is what Paul's talking about in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 9. And, and that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but the righteousness which is from God. Who? God's righteousness. See this is the tie with Romans chapter 1, verse 17. The righteousness of God. He says, the righteousness which comes from God, and that's the, the righteousness I believe that he's primarily talking about here that's on display in the gospel, the righteousness that we have from God, which is by faith. We believe we're made righteous. Now, what does that belief mean? I mean, you know, that's a big deal. Believe. Oh, I believe in Jesus. You say, I believe in Jesus because you heard about him once. You know? Somebody said there's this guy, Jesus, it was interesting because we had a youth pastor uh, in one of the churches I served before, and they actually had a student in the student ministry who came to him and said, well, who's this Jesus guy? It's like, in America, you know, so I, I never heard of him. Who's Jesus? So you say, well, I believe in Jesus because I know about Jesus. I believe in Jesus because I heard this story about Jesus. I went to church on Christmas, and I went to church on Easter, and I know that this thing that he supposedly died, and then he rose again from the dead. No, that's not belief in Jesus. Belief in Jesus is actually personal trust in Jesus. It's active faith. Went to the Royal Gorge with our kids when they were younger. It's in Colorado, southern Colorado. It's a big gorge, 1,250 feet down from the top. And they had this uh, this trolley car that went across you know it's on a cable it's a cable car I thought well that looks cool uh, let's go on that kids are like "Ooh, that's a long ways down there I'm thinking yeah it's a long ways down there so we got on the cable car and you know you really don't think about it too much till you're halfway across because that's right when the river's running underneath it and you're kind of looking down Ooh, this is a long ways to fall that's faith it might have been blind faith but it was faith. It was trust, active trust. It made me do something. Trust in Christ is you actually are sold out for Jesus. He becomes your master and your Lord. It's not just like, well, you know, I'll kind of take Jesus one day, you know, check the weather and see if uh, this Jesus thing working out for me okay. If it's not that day, I, I'll try it another day. No, it's I'm all in. I understand I desperately need him. And I turn and I trust in him completely and he becomes the master, the ruler of my thoughts, my attitudes, my actions, my pocketbook, my relationships. Everything is his. And what he says goes. And, and, and this rescues all who believe from suffering God's wrath eternally. It rescues us from striving with God presently, fighting God, and rescues us so that we're strengthened in him to live courageously right now in the light of whatever mess we're in. He's got us. It's active trust. And Paul proves that justification by faith has always been God's plan. Interesting, isn't it? That the Bible is not surprised by Paul in the New Testament by bringing something new in. Oh, it's, it's by faith. Justification is by faith. Well, that's kind of a new idea. Where do we get that? From faith to faith, as it is written, he says, the just shall live by faith. He's quoting the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Some of you say Habakkuk. However you want to say it, that's fine. I say Habakkuk, okay? In two K's, Habakkuk. Can you say two K's in a row? Habakkuk. But what does Habakkuk say? He says, the righteous shall live by faith. That's basically a direct quote from Habakkuk. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, the, the writer of Hebrews 
says the same thing. And what he's saying there is that the righteous person, because the, the Babylonians were, were going to take over and, and punish the Israelites. That's the history of Habakkuk, right? They're going to take over. And Habakkuk says to them, the Babylonians are, are coming and it's going to be bad, but guess what? Eventually they'll be taken out. But in the meantime, the righteous Israelite will live by faith, by his trust every single day in God's grace and mercy and kindness. So it's kind of like the righteous will live their life on the basis of trusting God every day. And Hebrews chapter 10 verse 38 repeats it and, and trumps it and says, yeah, that's, that's, that's my understanding of what this verse means. However, we get to Galatians, which predates Romans, and Paul brings out a different nuance from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. And basically, we could translate it this way. If you looked, uh, we got a Galatians 3.11. Yeah. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous one shall live by faith. What's he talking about? Being justified. Justified by faith. Well, the righteous one will live by his faith. Could be translated, I think, according to this verse, the righteous by faith will live. Those who are righteous by faith, they are the ones who are alive. It, they're justified and they're alive in Christ. Which is, I think, what Paul is getting to in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. So you see there's two, two nuances. The righteous shall live by faith. So the person who is righteous lives basically day to day trusting in God. The second aspect of this, which Paul brings out here in Romans and Galatians, is that the righteous by faith, if you're trusting in Christ, then you live. You're declared righteous by your faith, which he has just been proving in verses 16 and the first part of 17. You're saying, oh, I'm kind of confused. Don't be confused. Both are true. Okay, Habakkuk is, is saying the righteous will live by faith. How were people declared righteous in the Old Testament? I mean, that's what he's saying. You're righteous. Clear back to Genesis, chapter 15, verse 6. And Abraham believed God. What did he do? He believed God. And his belief was reckoned to him as righteousness. Isn't that exactly what Paul has just said in Romans 1.17? 17? For it is the power of God unto salvation, for in it the righteousness of God has been revealed. He's been declared righteous by his faith. That's what he's saying in verse 17, I think, primarily. Now, he's not saying that you're, you're, the, the just shall not live by faith. That he's saying the just shall be made alive by faith, and those who are made alive by faith will continue to live by faith. I'm saved by faith, and I continue on in my faith by faith. <laughs> I keep living by faith. Is that true for you? You're saved by faith. And if you're saved by faith, do we live by faith each day? What is it you're struggling to trust God with right now? Because if you know Christ is your Savior, you're in. Okay? But sometimes we feel like we're out because I'm not living by faith. We need to trust God that he's going to take care of us. The righteous by faith. The Christian life is only by faith. And it's not by faith to faith. From faith to faith, it's only by faith. I'm saved by faith, I live by faith. Saved by faith. So every believer should be unashamed. Unashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God. People cannot come to know Christ apart from the gospel. You want to know pardon from your sin? You want to know freedom from guilt? Peace in your soul, purpose in your life, power to live 
over and above the, the wickedness of the world. You want the prize at the end? Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone. That's the answer. And so we know that's the answer. We have the bread that people are starving to have, so we just have to share it. It's the result. See, the answer to the conflict in the Middle East, the answer to the, the human trafficking problem, the answer to the, the moral depravity in our country, the answer to the dishonesty and corruption is Jesus. We can elect all the politicians in the world, but if they don't know Jesus and they aren't promoting Jesus and they're not promoting the cause of Jesus, then the problems will continue and perpetuate. And until the people who are involved in the conflicts know Christ and submit to Him and understand what it is to be one in Jesus, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your nationality, regardless of your economic status, there will be conflict. It's for everyone who believes. For the Romans and pagan Greeks, for Liberians and Asians and Indians, and you fill in the blank. For all of us, it's for all of us who know Christ. And it's God's righteousness is ours the moment we put our faith or our trust in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, every rabbit trail you're chasing down will lead you further and further into a hole that you will not find satisfaction, you'll not find purpose, you'll not find pardon, you'll not find peace, you'll not find the prize at the end of this life. And I just implore you, I beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to take communion, help us to realize we're justified by the person and the work of Jesus, by our belief, our trust in Jesus, and that these elements only symbolize the sacrifice that you made. I pray that your death would, would, would be meditated upon us because your death made life possible for all of us who believe. And I pray that we would reflect on the price and rejoice in the prize of what it means to be your children. And I ask that you would work in our hearts, that each of us would examine our hearts, confess any known sin before we come up front or in the back and take the bread and the juice to reflect on the cost and the price and our desperate need for you and then to rejoice what you've done for us as undeserving sinners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.